Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast of the New Books Network. I'm Tim Thurston, one of the hosts of the channel, and today I spoke with Dr. Emily Wilcox about her new book, Revolutionary Bodies, Chinese Dance and the Socialist Legacy, recently published with the University of California Press. Emily is Assistant Professor of Modern Chinese Studies in the Department of Asian Languages and Cultures at the University of Michigan, or as Buckeyes like myself must call it, that school up north. Revolutionary Bodies is the first English-language primary source-based history of dance in the People's Republic of China. Combining a a decade of ethnographic and archival research, Dr. Wilcox analyzes major dance works by Chinese choreographers staged over an 80-year period from 1935 to 2015. Using previously unexamined film footage, photographic documentation, performance programs, and other historical and contemporary sources, Wilcox challenges the commonly accepted view that Soviet-inspired revolutionary ballets are the primary legacy of the socialist era in China's dance field. Our conversation ranged from the practicalities of publishing a new style of book in an open access format and using a large number of video resources in a book, to the term kinesthetic nationalism and the transnational nature of early Chinese dance, to the socialist legacy of post-Mao dance. It was a fascinating conversation, and I hope you'll find it as enjoyable and informative as I did. Stay tuned. Hello, and welcome to New Books in East Asian Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Tim Thurston, one of the hosts of the channel, and today I'm joined by Professor Emily Wilcox, Emily is Assistant Professor of Modern Chinese Studies in the Department of Asian Languages and Cultures at at School Up North, as I, a Buckeye, am obliged to call it, also known as the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor. Um, She is a specialist in Chinese dance and performance culture with broader interests in 20th century global history, transnationalism, gender, and social movements. And today, she's going to be talking about her first book, Revolutionary Bodies, Chinese Dance and the Socialist Legacy recently published with University of California Press. Emily, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, It's our pleasure. Um, Emily, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, I grew up in Michigan. Um, I started dancing from a young age. Um, I first did ballet, and then when I was in college, I did competitive ballroom dance. Um, And I also studied anthropology as an undergrad at Harvard, and then Um, in my PhD at the University of California, Berkeley. And then after um, completing my PhD, I went on to teach at uh, the College of William & Mary for two years. And then I've been teaching at the University of Michigan now for six years. Fantastic. And um, how did you come to write this book, this Revolutionary Bodies book? Um, Well, when I was doing my PhD, like most um, graduate students, I you know, was exploring and trying to find a exciting topic that could produce innovative research. And at one point I was taking a graduate seminar on the history of 
international competitive or I guess comparative history at the time it was between China, Qing China and Republican era China and uh, the British Empire and thinking about cultural exchange. And I ended up writing a research paper on Shanghai and its history in the context of the circulation of ballet and uh, Western modern dance. And then also the early history of um, Chinese classical dance and Chinese dance drama. And it was while writing that um, seminar paper that I started to realize there was this whole field of dance history that could actually um, be a window into thinking about a lot of um, bigger issues about China and its place in the world. Very cool. And that sort of, that became the dissertation that became the book Um, in its present form or? Oh, that's a good question. Yeah. So actually, um, like I said, I did my PhD in anthropology. And so initially the project was um, very ethnographic. So actually during my fourth year of graduate school, I ended up um, getting a Fulbright to study in China. And I studied for almost two years at the Beijing Dance Academy, which is um, the oldest and the most prestigious professional dance conservatory in China. And while I was there, I um, primarily studied Chinese dance, both Chinese classical dance and Chinese uh, national folk dance. And then I also did um, ethnographic fieldwork in Beijing and then in a number of other locations around the country um, through short-term visits that were connected through this larger um, professional dance community. And so the original dissertation was actually very much focused on the contemporary period, and it was very much focused on uh, my own ethnographic experience as a dancer in the conservatory setting. Um, So a lot of emphasis on on, uh, my own kinesthetic experience and knowledge as a dance practitioner, and then um, a huge amount of um, material based on oral histories. So I collected about, at that time, 150 um, oral histories of professional dancers of different ages from different places across the country. And I really used that material um, as a way to think about the um, expression of um, national identity, ethnic identity, class um, constructions during the socialist period, and then also the particular aesthetics and philosophy of um bodily movement as part of China's socialist and post-socialist history. Um, And then after that, I mean, I completed that project um, in 2011. And then after um, I kind of did a disciplinary shift that was pretty significant, and I I switched from anthropology to Chinese studies. And in that process, um, I started to read a lot more deeply into um, Chinese film, literature, visual culture studies, and started to think about dance more in the context of cultural history in modern China. And from that perspective, I actually decided to completely sort of start over and rewrite the book and, and redo the research from a cultural history perspective. And so the actual book is a product of that um, that second phase of research that I did after completing the dissertation. And um, that's why it's actually much more of a um, dance history than an ethnography per se, although the last chapter does draw on my ethnographic research. Well, that's very cool, sort of seeing the way that the, that the changes in disciplines have helped to sort of shape the, the development of the book. Um, and it does it does seem to really go through, I, I think in the introduction you say it's a chronological, it, it goes chronologically from sort of the 1940s into the present. Um, so that's that's really interesting to sort of see how that how that came to be. Um, 
since 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 we're sort of moving into the book, um, I'm just wondering if we could talk a little bit about the book's form itself because um, it, it's sort of it's sort of unique. And I don't I don't know if the print copy has this, but for one of the things that immediately stood out to me in the book is the way in which you have embedded video excerpts of dance that readers can watch by scanning a QR code on their phones or on on some other uh, device. And I love this feature, and I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about it and sort of how you were able to make that happen. Yeah, that's actually something I'm really excited about, too, because with dance studies, um, you know, often we do get still images, but um, what we really need is to see the dance um, in movement, because that's really what, as dance scholars, we're interested in. And so I was very excited when the Luminous platform at the University of California Press um, was able to provide this um, seamless um embedded video feature. So if people are watching the, uh, or excuse me, are reading the ebook version, they can actually just click on um, the image and it will start to play as a video. And so it really is um, very easy to integrate the, um, the video portion into the reading experience. And like you said, for people who are using the, um, the actual physical copy of the book, which is um, available in soft cover, they can just scan the QR code or type in um, the web link and be able to see the video immediately while they're reading. And there's 19 excerpts of dance works that um, date from 1947 all the way up to 2015. Oh, that's super cool. And and so did you have to go and get permissions for all of those as well or? Um, for most of them I did. Yeah. So um, anything after 1968 needs to have a permission. And so um, I was able to draw on the um, you know personal networks that I had from being a long-term ethnographer in the professional dance community in China. Um, some of them came from like my former teachers and um, former uh, collaborators on different projects. And then the 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 videos for the most part that came from prior to 1968 were already in the public domain, with the exception of um, the very first two, which are of Dai Ailian performing. Chinese dance in New York in 1947. And for those, I was able to get um, permission from the, I think, daughter or granddaughter of the person who originally created the film. Oh, that's so incredible. What yeah. a, and, and, and truly a tremendous resource that, that's sort of complementing the book. Um, <clears throat> well, so I guess, I guess without further ado, we should sort of get into the book itself. Um, I guess the ultimate it's you're talking about in the introduction about this thing called Chinese dance as a genre that has uh, three you say three core commitments: kinesthetic nationalism, ethnic and spatial inclusiveness, and dynamic inheritance. And I I was wondering, can you unpack these three terms for us a little bit and sort of how they inform what you are calling Chinese dance? Sure, uh, absolutely. Um, so the first thing I guess I want to clarify is that the, the concept of Chinese dance is something that exists in the dance communities in China that has existed back to um, the very early period of this um, chronology that I'm writing about back to the 1940s. And so this is a term that is um, an internal to the, the community of dancers that I'm writing about. And my um, my approach in this book was to try to understand what the practitioners themselves actually mean by Chinese dance and how their own theorization of this concept has actually produced this dance genre um, that has a huge um, role in Chinese dance practice today, not only in China, but also among um, diasporic communities and Sinophone communities um, in other parts of the world. So the term itself, Chinese dance and its constituent um, subforms, which 
um, include Chinese classical dance and Chinese national folk dance. That um, concept is something that already existed that part of the purpose of the book was to sort of really unpack and understand um, what it is from the perspective of the people who practice it and who identify with it. Um, and so the three core commitments are um, features that I ha- that I identified as um, really persistent um, values that dance practitioners who I, uh, identify with this practice of Chinese dance have um, enacted through their chore- choreographic choices, through their um, pedagogical choices, through the institutional development, and then through their own theorization and writing, um, basically throughout the whole history of the form. And so the first one, kinesthetic nationalism, um, it really dates back to the national forms movement of the late 30s and early 40s, Minzuxingshi. Um, and this was a concept that um, many people associate with Yan'an. It was um, theorized in the late 30s and early 40s at the very beginning of the Yanga movement um, in the communist area um, during the war, during the Sino-Japanese war. Um, but also there were intellectuals and artists who participated in that dialogue about Minzuxingshi or national forms actually across the country. And it was that um, dialogue and that um, effort to sort of develop national forms in a whole wide range of artistic spheres like visual arts, theater, language, um, music, um, that dance actually became part of this larger movement to create a national form or a national expressive um, aesthetic or vocabulary that could be um, developed within the sphere of dance. And so kinesthetic nationalism for me is the set of ideas that emerged out of that, um, that set of dialogues and debates and experiments in which um, practitioners of Chinese dance really identify dance form or what's sometimes referred to as a movement vocabulary. Um, the movements themselves, the styles of the movements as what defines this genre from other genres. So what distinguishes Chinese dance from ballet, for example, or from uh, ballroom dance or from um, your American modern dance is actually the vocabulary of movements that the body is performing. Um, This is really important because a lot of the early theorists of Chinese dance really wanted to make a distinction between who was performing the dance or um, what the themes of the dance were. So um, Dai Ailin, who's one of the early um, theorists of this concept, says, um, you know, just because Chinese people are dancing doesn't make it Chinese dance. What makes it Chinese dance is that the movements themselves have some kind of um, distinctive uh, vocabulary. And she also uh, made the similar argument saying, you know, even if it's a dance that's about a Chinese story or it's telling some kind of, um, it's portraying some kind of character that exists within a Chinese historical framework, that too does not make the dance Chinese dance. So for her, it was very explicit that it was the form of the movement that identified it as Chinese dance. And this was something that I um, I saw play out actually again and again when I was doing oral histories, when I was reading um, the dance criticism, uh, dance bulletins, and other dance publications in which dancers and choreographers were writing about um, their theorizations of Chinese dance sort of all the way through from the 1950s, 60s, 80s, 90s, and the present. This is a constant theme that emerges in Chinese dance discourses, the, the importance of the movement vocabulary and the dance form as the identifying feature. Um, and I thought this was also extremely important because Um, When we talk about the socialist period, this book is very much about how we should understand um, the legacy of socialist creativity in the sphere of dance. And there's existing um, language about sort of the importance of socialist realism, um, the importance of certain themes. And also um, many people look to ballet as a really key feature or um, 
phenomenon that emerged out of that period. And one of the um, really important contributions that this book makes and that I found through my research is that experiments in form were actually a huge part of the socialist um, aesthetic practice. And so the creation of new forms, which is something we often um, don't necessarily associate with the socialist period, um, was actually very much um, a vibrant feature of um, dance, especially in the 1950s and early 60s, which I see as sort of the early golden age of Chinese dance when it really emerged and crystallized as an art form. Um, and so this whole I issue of um, dance form, of the creation of new expressive vocabularies in dance as sort of the heart of what Chinese dance is about is something that I was trying to express through the concept of kinesthetic nationalism, because the, the concept was to create a national form, um, a movement expression that could somehow be uh, distinctively Chinese. Um, so that's the first of the three. Do you want me to go on and talk about the other two also? Uh, yes, I please. can. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I just want to make sure because I know I just talked for kind of a long time. Um, okay. So um, for the second one, um, spatial, um, ethnic and spatial inclusiveness, this is another feature that um, kind of goes through the entire 80 years of Chinese dance history that I trace in the book. It's a continuous feature. Um, even as other things change, this is another thing that has stayed constant through time. Um, and so what this means is that um, the overall um, genre of Chinese dance, it includes dozens, even hundreds of sort of sub vocabularies or sub forms that are all um, included under this umbrella of Chinese dance. And within those sub forms, what you find is that people very closely identify um, a specific style of movement with either a specific geographical place within China. So many dance styles within Chinese dance are actually named after places. So for example, you have um, Shandong Jiaozhou Yangge, which is um, the Yangge form specific to the Jiaozhou um, region of Shandong province. Um, and then you also have a number of um, dance forms that are named after specific ethnic groups. So you have Uyghur dance, you have Tibetan dance, you have um, Dai dance, for example. And within those, there's also specific regional variations. Um, and so this, this geographic and ethnic mapping of dance styles onto specific communities is something that you see throughout time um, within the Chinese dance uh, community as something that dancers are constantly taking for granted as something that should be a part of Chinese dance choreography is that specific vocabulary should reflect um, specific ethnic and regional identities. And the regional part is actually very important because I, many people who are familiar with Chinese dance know that it um, expresses different ethnic um, identities because they're, they're familiar with sort of seeing different uh, minority um, dance styles presented on stage. Uh, but, but what many people don't realize is that actually many of the different dance styles that are included in Chinese dance are actually representations of local um, Han ethnic identities. And so like the example I just gave of Shandong Jiaozhou Yangge is um, classified as a Han ethnic dance of a particular region. Um, and from the early period of um, the emergence of this dance form, you can see a really clear um, uh, structuring of, for example, the um, conservatory um, curricula are designed around these quote unquote uh, regions and ethnicities. So at different times, there'll be like the four regions and the five ethnicities. And so this geographic and spatial imaginary um, is part of a larger ethnic imaginary that goes into um, the creation of Chinese dance as an expression of China as a nation as a whole. Um, and so um, another part of that is that throughout history, there's been a large number of practitioners who come from um, these um, diverse regions across the country and also different ethnic backgrounds who have contributed to the creation of the dance form. And in this way, this makes Chinese dance, I think, a really great um, space in which to examine issues of um, 
China's changing multi-ethnic identity um, throughout different historical periods. Um, and then lastly, the, the concept of dynamic inheritance is also something that I see. Um, I mean, it was something that I first encountered as an ethnographer when I was, um, you know, taking Chinese dance classes every day and sort of immersed in um, the atmosphere of dialogue uh, by Chinese dance practitioners and scholars was um, a really clear sense that although Chinese dance is classified as a folk form or a, a classical form, um, it's actually not, um, the practitioners themselves are not envisioning what they're doing as a static preservation of existing uh, forms. So in this way, um, the sort of, um, ideologies or um, theorizations of Chinese dance um, don't actually fit into a lot of the existing conceptions that we have in the West about what folk dance is or what classical dance is as um, something that's always looking back to the past and sort of meant to be preserving something um, in, in its exact form into the current or, or future moments. And instead, what I found was that people had a very self-reflexive concept of their own role in reimagining and recreating um, tradition constantly through each generation. And so the, the idea of dynamic inheritance is actually uh, meant to theorize what I find to be um, one of the basic um, assumptions and values within this Chinese dance practitioner community, which is that each generation actually has the responsibility to reimagine and recreate traditional forms to make them um, current and to make them appeal to a new um, contemporary community of audience members and dancers. Um, and so this dyna dynamism um, of constant change is actually, and innovation is actually built into the notion of inheritance um, within this practitioner community. Uh, that's really interesting to me. I, I think, I mean, the the idea of kinesthetic nationalism really sort of, I, I can really see that and definitely the spatial sort of inclusion element is certainly. Uh, I, I'm curious about the, the dynamic inheritance um, because I think a lot of Western scholars, particularly ethnographers, would agree that traditions are by nature dynamic. Um, but is the Chinese take on this sort of a dynamic inheritance somehow unique or somehow different from the way Western scholars might take it? Um, I think, um, so it's hard to say because of course, you know, Western theorization is very diverse and it's also changing and it also depends on the different fields. Um, but if I just take sort of um, the dance uh, world as its own example, I would say that um there's still um, a, a gap between scholars who look at concert dance or art dance, sort of dance that's for the stage, um, that's um, understood to be the product of artistic creation um, on the one hand, and then scholars who look at um, ethnic dance or folk dance or national dance, which is often assumed to be much more embedded in um, local shared um, knowledge and shared creative practices rather than sort of individual artistic creativity. And one of the things that I think is important about this concept of dynamic inheritance that exists within the Chinese dance sphere is that it very clearly bridges those two worlds and it shows that the dichotomy between art dance and ethnic dance, for example, is actually a false dichotomy. Um, and we see this play out, actually, there's been a great deal of dance research on um, the modern construction of Indian classical dance. So in the South Asian context, there's been a, a lot of really excellent scholarship that has shown us the ways in which um, the emergence of classical Indian dance was very much a specific historical um, example that happened in the context of 
um, late colonial, anti-colonial movements. There were specific artists who were involved in uh, reimagining and recreating these forms. Um, and then also there are a lot of class dimensions involved in the, um, the hierarchy of practitioners. And, and I see something similar happening with Chinese dance where you actually see individual artists playing a very large role in the conceptualization and um, adaptation of existing um, dance practices for the concert stage. And even though those are um, conceptualized as classical or folk, um, they're actually um, products of artistic um, innovation in a similar way to other types of concert dance practices that we might look at um, as dance scholars. And so um, for me, I think the Chinese theorization can actually contribute to our ways of thinking about um, different dance practices in many parts of the world, not just in China. I think it can be actually elevated to a kind of theoretical lens that we can use to break down these dichotomies um, that exist in our in our way of thinking about different dance practices. That's very neat. Um, and I guess sort of once we start talking about the individual dancers and the individual sort of uh, performers who are who are uh, making these changes, one of the things that also struck me, particularly in the introduction in chapter one, was how um, international, many of these earlier creators of Chinese dance were. Mm-hmm. Um, and it reminds me of something I think I read recently about ideas on the international art market, sort of where, you know, the this international space is, it's about the art. Um, and, but But it's different with Chinese dance, where you have these people who have been abroad or come from abroad and come back to China. Um, and I was wondering, is, is is being international sort of a prerequisite for the opportunity or the aesthetic sense to play a role in these creative fine arts at that sort of early moment? Or perhaps uh, was it at that particular point or, or is it or am I getting it wrong? No, I think that's a perfect assessment. I mean, you're right. Um, so one of the things that I discovered in the process of the historical research that I found really exciting is that this early group of founders of Chinese dance um, did include, like you said, um, uh, many people who had very intercultural transnational um, upbringings. And so Dai Ailean was a third generation diasporic Chinese um, born and raised in Trinidad who found her way to China in the 1940s and then became you know, the leading figure actually of this form at that time. Um, and then you have Kambar Han, who um, is a Uyghur dancer born in Kashgar, who trained in Uzbekistan and Moscow, really had a, a full professional career um, in the former Soviet Union before she moved back to Xinjiang in the early 1940s and also became a leading figure. Um, then you have Chesun He, who is um, actually a Korean dancer who trained in um, in Tokyo. Um, she grew up during uh, the Japanese colonial period in Korea. She became an internationally known dancer and then eventually came to China in the 1940s and contributed to this field. Um, and then you have other figures like Wu Xiaobang, who was born and raised in China, but was exposed to dance and received his um, his dance training in Japan um, during the, the 1930s. And so um, these are just some examples of the people who were part of this early generation. And I think, um, you know, absolutely, you see a predominance of figures like these who had professional dance careers abroad, or at least trained abroad. Um, and I think part of the reason for that is that the concept of concert dance um, as an independent artistic sphere, separate from music and theater, was actually something that was um, relatively new in China in the early 20th century. And of course, China has a long history of, of dance performance. Um, but throughout time, dance has often been combined with theater or with ritual practices or with music. Um, and especially during the Qing dynasty, um, dance was usually um, part of 
the um, operatic sphere. And so in the early 20th century, there really wasn't um, an indigenous um, field of um, concert dance that could produce um, these really you know, influential, highly trained figures. And so for that reason, many of the early members of this cohort received their training abroad, and it was abroad that they were exposed to and um, initiated into this profession of dance. Um, and so because of that, um, you do see that the early generation is sort of bringing a lot of their training and their inspiration from abroad. Um, and apart from that, I mean, there was also, there was um, definitely a, a large amount of folk performance that included dance as a huge element. Um, but that wasn't really present in a lot of the urban areas where we see um, the concert stage um, emerging as a really important site of um, entertainment and um, political culture with, especially with like the spoken drama movement. And so it's really in the urban areas that you have a lot of these um, cosmopolitan or transnational communities. And you have a lot of the um, documented discourses about um, the creation of modern uh, concert dance. And so, um, you know, like you said, like many other artistic forms at the time, a lot of the new developments were happening in the context of these um, global circulations of, of people. It's really neat. It's something I feel like I've seen a lot of my own research as well. Um, and I guess maybe we can we can sort of jump straight into to one of the examples that you profile in chapter one. Um, and this is uh, Trinidad-born Dai Ailien, who you've mentioned once or twice already. Um, and, uh, and how did Dai Ailien uh, come to play such a significant role in Chinese dance? And what were the... Um, and how does her story serve as a sort of a lens through which to understand some of the major developments in China's dance history during the early 20th century? Um, yeah, so, yeah, so the first chapter really does use her biography as a way into this story. And um, one of the things that I think is really important about her story is that she started her career actually in London as a diasporic Chinese um, in a colonial context. I mean, she was a subject, a colonial British subject growing up in Trinidad. And I really wanted to highlight um, the global dance um, sort of um, social organization of the dance field at that time outside China. And one of the things I wanted to know was for dancers who were not um, of European heritage, dancers of color, they face tremendous challenges that are in some ways parallel to the challenges that dancers might face today um, who are working in Europe or the United States or other predominantly white societies. Um, and I wanted to really highlight that issue of ethnic and racial um, um, stereotyping and prejudice as something that was a driving force in the creation of Chinese dance. So on the one hand, Chinese dance emerged in China as part of China's own, um, Chinese artists' own struggle to establish their own um, expressions of modern um, society, modern experiences. But also this is driven by a, a broader transnational phenomenon in which you have the hegemonic status of um, forms like ballet and uh, Western modern dance, which um, come from Euro-American um, colonial cosmopolitan centers. And you have a strong sort of sense of desire on the part of artists who are not able to easily assimilate into that dance world, and also who want to bring their own um, cultural contributions to the concert stage at that time. And so Dialyan, when she's living in England, she really faces this dilemma because as a diasporic dancer, she has trouble um, getting the same types of roles as other dancers that she studied alongside of. Um, and she also gets, um, she gets cast for um, Orientalist productions, for productions um, for, such as in film 
that have a very strong um, anti-Chinese, like yellow peril sentiment, um, which was common to a lot of um, transnational representations of China at the time. And so it's in that context that she starts to develop um, a sense of um, her own ethnic consciousness and a desire to have her own voice in deciding how um, Chinese subjects are represented on the concert stage. And that's part of what drives her to actually emigrate to China when she's in her early 20s, even though she can't speak Chinese, she's never been to Asia before. I mean, you know, I think of her as a very inspiring, very brave figure to take this, um, this journey across the world. In the early 1940s, she arrives in Hong Kong. And then um, because it's the wartime, she actually is able to um, participate in a lot of the fundraising events to actually raise uh, consciousness and raise, fu raise funds to support the Chinese side of um, the Sino-Japanese War. And so it's within that very particular historical moment moment that all of these different things converge in terms of her own experience as a dancer, um, the larger um, movement to sort of bring um, overseas Chinese into this national consciousness, um, which was happening all over, not just in dance, but in many different fields at the time. Um, and so it's a convergence of events. And then she ends up um, in Chongqing, which at the time was the KMT um, capital during, um, during the war. And she ends up, you know, getting embedded into a lot of the local artistic communities in part through her husband, Ye Tianyu, who's a famous um, Chinese painter and cartoonist, or excuse me, and, um, and um, um, he sketched a lot of really now um, very enduring um, images actually of dancers, including Dai Lian's own dance, but also of a, a number of other um, dancers at the time. And so through through her connection to Ye Tianyu, she gets involved in the leftist um artistic uh, community in Chongqing. And it's actually there that she develops a whole cohort of students and collaborators and um, she conducts her own field work. So this is another way in which she's actually a very inspiring figure. She is not content to sort of remain in the major urban centers. She really feels that in order to find um, the material that she wants to use to create these new concert dance forms, she needs to go out um, to many different parts of the country. So she travels um, to what was at the time um, part of um, the Tibetan region, which is now in Western Sichuan. She goes to Kangbing and she does um, ethnographic fieldwork with Tibetan dancers there. She also travels through uh, many other parts of like um, Guangxi province in Southwest China and encounters different um, local um, theater forms like um, Gui Opera, for example, and then also different um, performance practices of different ethnic groups living in Southwest China. And all of that actually inspires her to create the first um, repertoire of what at the time was known as frontier dance, um, Bianjiang Wu, um, which she staged in Chongqing along with um, some local groups of um, Tibetan and Mongolian er, and Uyghur students in Chongqing, as well as her own students who had come for the most part from the Eastern seaboard during the war. And they staged this important event in 1946, which actually now is seen as um, the, the important sort of founding moment of Chinese dance, and particularly of um, Chinese national folk dance, ethnic, ethnic minority dance in the modern period. What an inspiring figure. Um, that's really incredible. Moving swiftly onward to the 1950s, the second chapter uh, entitled Experiments in Form sort of looks into to, to a point you mentioned in, in passing earlier about how in sort of the socialist period, there was actually a tremendous amount of innovation. Um, and and you, you start this chapter with this discussion about how there was a need to train a tremendous number of new dancers um, 
to to accommodate demands for uh, more performers who can dance in governmental song and dance troops. Um, and I was wondering if you, if you could take this uh, this uh, take a second to sort of introduce us to how in the 1950s um, this Chinese dance form uh, how this innovation happened and what were some of the major trends of the period. Yeah. Um, so one of the things that I really highlight in this chapter is the way in which there was not um, a set concept of sort of a top-down um, idea of what Chinese dance should be or what socialist dance should be. And so I start the chapter with these um, really uh, controversial works that emerged in 1950, where you had um, different dance um collaborations happening, one in Guangzhou that I look at and one in Beijing, um, where they start to stage these full-length productions of narrative dance performances using um, a very wide range of different dance styles. And then you have critics responding to these experiments and sort of debating the merits of different choices that dancers make. So there's a piece um, called Peace Dove that really uses a lot of ballet movement vocabulary and modern dance vocabulary and uses a lot of um, abstract modernist um, stage designs. And that piece, um, even though it's expressing actually a really important political theme of the time, which was the um, international peace movement, um, which politically really did fit into the agenda of the period because aesthetically it relied so much on classical European forms and also modernist um, European forms, the piece was heavily criticized. Um, and then by contrast, you have this other um, production that was actually staged in Guangzhou that used um, a mix of um, Chinese operatic elements, modern dance elements. Um, it used a lot of field um, research methods to sort of understand the recent history that the piece was actually portraying. It was about a military uh, victory that happened in Hainan Island during the Civil War. Um, and so I really wanted to highlight the ways in which um, the critics and the dancers themselves were unsure of what socialist dance should look like. And it was um, a moment of debate um, and artistic experimentation, sort of trying to figure out what the path forward should be like. Um, and that was important for me because when I was reading, um, you know, the early dance journals and publications at this time, there is a really clear sense um, of a legitimate, genuine um, debate happening um, rather than sort of what we often think of as a top down, um, you know, declaration of this is what dance should be. And then everybody follows it. And in, in a way, there was actually much more um, diversity in terms of the opinions of different dancers about what they wanted to create, what they thought the future should look like. And I wanted to give a sense of that um, sense of um, uncertainty about the future that was really present in the early 1950s. Um, so what I show is that through this debate that happened over these two um, dance works in 1950, um, you then had dancers sort of unsatisfied with both examples and looking for other options. And so then it just happens that at that time, there's a tour of ethnic minority uh, performance groups that happens that really inspires a lot of people, um, again, to see ethnic minority forms as an important um, contributor to the larger process of creating a, a national socialist dance form. But at the same time, because the Korean War is happening, um, Che Sung-hee, this Korean dancer, gets invited to Beijing and actually trains this um, really important generation of early um, choreographers and dancers <clears throat> at the um, Central Academy of Drama. And so she contributes her own theorization and um, uh, actual artistic experiments using the um, the bodily forms of movement that exist in Chinese operatic theater. And so she, um, she contributes a lot to sort of this idea of, oh, 
um, actually maybe uh, movements that come from Xichu performance, from Quinchu or from Jingju, from Chinese operatic forms can actually be a really important resource for Chinese dance creators. And so through these um, these different experiments that happen in like 1950, 51, and 52, you do start to get a consensus by 1953 that's pretty clear um, that ends up being the um, the model that's used to create the Chinese, um, the first major Chinese dance conservatory, which is the Beijing Dance School. Now it's known as the Beijing Dance Academy, but that's created in 1954. And when the school is created, it creates the first national curriculum for um, Chinese dance training, which I argue is actually very, very important if we think about the genesis of a new art Form because in order to have a dance vocabulary, you need to have um, bodies that are trained in that vocabulary who can perform that vocabulary of movement. And so the dance curriculum that's established at the Beijing Dance School is extremely important for crystallizing this new um, genre as um, a coherent form. And um, what I show is that that early curriculum really centered um, movements, movement vocabularies that were in some way adapted from indigenous movement practices. So on the one hand, you have Chinese classical dance, which is um, at the time really taking inspiration from uh, Chinese operatic movement. And it's created in collaboration also with opera practitioners. Um, and then on the other hand, you have um, this curriculum of the quote unquote, you know, four regions and five ethnicities where you have um, dance styles that are based on different um, geographic regions of Han performance and then different ethnic minority groups. And those are also created in collaboration with different representatives from different parts of the country. And the Uyghur dance I mentioned earlier, Kambara Han is invited in 1953 to Beijing to actually train the first generation of, of teachers at the school, along with a number of regional experts that come from over the country. And so I end the chapter by looking at the construction of the school curriculum, um, which then ends up being the model that's actually adapted by um, other uh, regional dance schools that are established throughout the period. It's really interesting to sort of see how that, how those early formations uh, continue to resonate much later on, and we'll get to that. Um, but in the middle stage, uh, chapter three. Uh, which is about sort of performing a socialist nation, looks at developments of dance during the Great Leap Forward, uh, sort of the 19, late 1950s and early 1960s. Um, what are the key developments of this period and how do they differ from the period immediately preceding it? Yeah. Um, so one of the things I really highlight about this period, especially in the late 1950s, is um, the transnational circulation of Chinese dance. And so Chinese dance is not happening in a vacuum. Um, it's really happening in um, dialogue with uh, many other national dance movements that are happening in other parts of the world, and especially in the leftist um, sphere and socialist countries and also um, countries that became involved with the um, non-aligned movement with the Bandung Conference and so on. So you have a convergence of, on the one hand, a lot of anti-colonial and post-colonial um, dance movements that are producing these new um, representations of indigenous cultures around the world and uh, national cultures around the world through dance. Um, but then you also have in the socialist sphere, especially in Eastern Europe, the Soviet Union, but also in North Korea and Vietnam, you have um, the construction of these um, socialist folk dance forms, especially in ethnic dance forms. And all of these dance styles are actually being staged in um, these international events. And so one of the events that I look at is the World Festivals of Youth and Students, where Chinese dancers consistently performed and won awards um, all the way from 1949 up until 1962. And so I look at Chinese dance on the world stage as one of the spaces in which um, Chinese dancers were getting a lot of inspiration and ideas about how to move forward with their art form 
in dialogue with these other um, experiments that were happening around the world. Um, so that's one of the important developments of this period. And another important development is um, the emergence of what becomes known as the Minzu Ju or um, Chinese dance drama or national dance drama, which is meant to be um, a full-length narrative um, dance production. And one of the things that's important about it is that it allows for um, complex narratives and stories and characters to actually emerge on stage through dance. And this is really important because a lot of the earlier dance choreography was, you know, short, shorter, especially in the Chinese dance choreography, it was um, shorter, um, non-narrative often choreographies that were meant to sort of um, represent or stage a specific regional identity or ethnic identity or sort of um, new class consciousness or new, um, you know, sometimes gender image, but it wasn't necessarily carrying out a, a complex storyline. And the national dance dramas that, that came about, particularly in the late 1950s, they were able to take dance to a much higher level in terms of the types of complex ideological and political themes that they could address um, through the through the narrative devices um, that were developed for the stage for, for dance performance. And so in the late 1950s, you get the emergence of these, um, a series of national dance dramas that take up different themes. And so I look at three that were actually recorded in film form. And so we have full um, documentation of these stage choreographies um, that were adapted for, for film. And so I look at how these choreographies dealt with issues such as marriage choice, which is a really important um, um, issue for the, the communist state, especially early on in the 1950s, sort of promoting these new ways of, um, of promoting new gender relations and new family structures around the idea of um, gender equality and the role of, um, of youth in choosing their own marriage partners. And so there are dances that are sort of about that theme. Um, there are dances that deal with um, the understanding of Chinese history in relation to the colonialization of, um, of Asia and sort of where China fits into this anti-colonial um, uh, rebellion that, that starts. Um, so one of the dances actually looks at um, a local peasant revolt that happened in Shanghai during the Taiping Rebellion um, as a way of rethinking the long history of peasant uprising in China as something that is a class issue, but as also an issue of um, fighting against uh, the um, colonial exploitation of China by um, European and uh, U.S. forces um, in the 19th century. And so, and then at the last piece that I look at that's an example of this is a piece that um, is about the Civil War, but focuses on an ethnic minority community um, in Yunnan and sort of thinks about the interconnected relationships of class exploitation and ethnic exploitation in the, the period prior to the establishment of the People's Republic of China. And so I think these pieces are actually examples of the way in which dance um, can help us to understand the um, ideological and political commitments of different moments in uh, the historical trajectory of the People's Republic of China. And specifically during the Great Leap Forward, um, you see a lot of um, experimentation with new types of gendered um, figures. So you, I, I look at some of the, um, the lead characters of these dance dramas who are often women, um, and they combine in really interesting ways elements of um, more um, traditional femininity with um, the socialist era ways of thinking about women's role in society. And so we can look at the gradual uh, progression of these different concepts that happen on the stage through dance choreography at this time. Very neat stuff. Um, just all the way through, there's, there are so many different points that could be sort of unraveled a bit more. Um, but I want I want to 
jump over to the next chapter, um, which is which moves us forward from the Great Leap Forward into the Cultural Revolution. Um, and in it, you're looking, it's called A Revolt from Within, and you're looking at revolutionary ballet during the Cultural Revolution. Um, how does, uh, and you describe sort of ballet as sort of an other against which the, um, or prior to the 19, uh, prior to the Cultural Revolution as being sort of the other against which the Chinese dance self could be defined. Um, so what happens in, in the Cultural Revolution and and how does it help us better understand Chinese dance? Um, yeah, thanks. So this is actually one of the hardest chapters to write in the whole book because in many ways um, I found it to be very, be very paradoxical that ballet ended up becoming this really important um, symbol of socialist culture during the Cultural Revolution because it just it didn't fit with everything that had been happening prior to the Cultural Revolution. So if you look at the debates that were going on, the ways that people were theorizing, exactly as you said, people were consistently theorizing ballet as um, as being inconsistent with uh, Chinese socialist uh, values. And so whether it was because prior to the establishment of the PRC, ballet was uh, mainly introduced to China by um, the uh, so-called white Russians, Russians who had fled the Soviet Union because they didn't um, support the, the communist regime. They were the ones actually teaching ballet in urban centers. And in the 1940s, ballet was associated with um, urban bourgeois culture. And so from that sense, it was seen as... Um, you know, antithetical to socialist values. And then also because it was Western, um, it was seen as incapable of expressing um, a distinctive Chinese um, aesthetic sensibility and cultural heritage on stage. And so there are many reasons for, you know, that people saw ballet as really not the right fit for what they wanted to, um, ex you know, see on stage to express the new Chinese socialist culture. However, um, by the mid 1960s, there's so much debate going on. It's so much, um, you know, new sort of uh, experiments continuing to take place. And um, one of the things that happens is that you start to see um, countries from the non-Western world actually using ballet as an expression of their own modern national identity. So there's a really pivotal event that happens in 1958 where a Japanese ballet ensemble comes to China and performs The Way-Haired Girl. And um, around that same time, just a couple of years later, the Cuban ballet comes. And so there's this awareness that ballet is actually being appropriated actually by um, third world countries or in the case of Japan, other East uh, Asian countries um, to express uh, very different sensibilities. And Chinese dancers start to be inspired by this concept that ballet um, can actually be appropriated and transformed into a local um expressive form. Um, so that's one thing that happens. And the other thing that happens is that, of course, you have constant friction and factions within the dance world. And so in some ways, the Chinese dance world was very much competing with the ballet subfield, even though the, the ballet practitioners actually represented a much smaller number um, in the broader sort of overall um, just um, body of dancers as a whole. Um, but because they were consistently um, given a space to sort of experiment with ballet, they continued to advocate for their own interests. And so I think what happened when the Cultural Revolution broke out is that you had these competing factions. And in some ways, Chinese dance had become so established as the official um, symbol of the socialist country that it actually became associated with um, with the, in the hierarchy, it became associated with the established institutionalized um, 
culture that needed to be overturned when the Cultural Revolution happened. And so the ballet community was paradoxically um, the smaller, um, the less visible part of the dance world. And they were able to take advantage of this, you know, call for revolution to overturn the existing hierarchy and actually um, displace um, the, the, the status that Chinese dance had had through the previous 17 years. And so there, you get this 10-year period in the Cultural Revolution where ballet actually takes the lead and becomes the hegemonic form at the expense of Chinese dance. And so at that time, one thing one of the things I talk about is how um, pretty much all of the leading figures of Chinese dance were um, were attacked and criticized. And then you also have the first generation of um, Chinese dancers trained in the PRC who are also attacked and criticized. And Chinese dance as a whole is is banned um, during the Cultural Revolution for the most part, except for what you see emerging within the context of revolutionary ballets. And so again, this is sort of also speaking back to this theme that Chinese communist culture, socialist culture is not homogeneous. It's not monolithic. There's different um, different groups within that world that have different competing values and they're constantly in flux and they're constantly um, challenging one another to establish new ideas. And so um, it's showing in a way um, the continuous dynamism of this field, even in this context, it becomes actually very violent. I'm still just in my mind trying to wrap my head around sort of ballet becoming sort of bourgeois or not bourgeois but proletarian um yeah I, I don't think i have enough time to to deal with the cognitive dissonance um so instead um let's jump over to chapter five where you're looking at the post Mao period uh, and it's called the return of chinese dance and you're looking at the development of new forms or uh in the early post Mao period um and i wonder if you could discuss a bit about some of the major trends of this sort of return of chinese dance and maybe also compare it with some other cultural trends that were developing at that time, sort of like uh, scar literature, root-seeking literature, etc. Are these trends in conversation? Are they similar but different? Or um, what have you? Yeah, thanks. That's a really great question. Um, yeah, so in this chapter, um, I look at how what happens in the wake of the Cultural Revolution, basically. And um, one of the things that actually is happening across all these different artistic fields is um, criticism of the Cultural Revolution in different ways. So like scar literature is not something I talk about in the book, but it's definitely part of this larger context where people are voicing um, a really strong rejection of the Cultural Revolution in different ways, whether it's through their own life experiences that they're narrating in a very critical fashion, um, or sort of rejecting the aesthetic practices that were promoted during the Cultural Revolution. And this is happening in dance too. So you, so similarly, in the um, late 1970s, you get articles critiquing, crit critiquing the Gang of Four, critiquing Jiang Qing, and really making a clear statement that the Cultural Revolution was a deviation from correct um, revolutionary practice in dance. And what this produces, because the Cultural Revolution um, had um, really focused on ballet and had suppressed Chinese dance, Ironically, this actually creates a space in which um, Chinese dancers are able to bring back what had been the iconic socialist dance form of the pre-cultural revolution period, which was all these Chinese dance choreographies that had been created in the 50s and early 60s. And so you get the return of um, the practitioners themselves. So they're coming back from, you know, the um, labor camps or in some cases from house arrest or, you know, from various ways in which they had been um, kept out of the professional dance world. They come back and they reassume their positions. And so the people come back. I really trace the way in which the institutions actually of the early socialist period are reconstructed. Um, they had been, um, in many cases, reorganized or um, demolished during the Cultural Revolution period, but then they were they were actually recreated on the exact 
um, institutional forms, similar names to what they had had um, in the pre-cultural revolution period. And so, um, so in the dance field, you get um, a reemergence of Maoist dance forms that were um, prevalent prior to the cultural revolution. And so this is something that I think gives us a different way of understanding this period. It's not just post-Mao. It's also a re-Maoification of certain aspects of socialist culture that had been suppressed during the cultural revolution. And so that's what happened in dance. And so um, I look at two um, dance forms that really gained a lot of visibility during this period. So one is the um, dye peacock dance. And that especially becomes um, popular through uh, the contributions of this one artist, Yang Liping, who actually today continues to be one of the leading voices in Chinese dance choreography. Um, She appears, she's like a huge media icon in China, in addition to being a very successful dancer and choreographer. And she got her her start really in the late 1970s when she first performed the role of the peacock princess in this dance drama um, from Xishuang Batna. Um, and so that's the one example I look at. And the other example I look at is um, Dunhuang dance, which is a style of Chinese classical dance that's inspired by the Buddhist um, art that um, is been preserved in the Dunhuang um, Wogao caves in, um, in Northwest China. And so I show how these are two examples of um, following the ongoing pattern in Chinese dance, which is to learn from existing um, material, material, whether it's historical uh, material like Dunhuang or whether it's um, ethnographic material like um, the Dai Peacock Dance. Um, so dance choreographers are getting taking inspiration, they're doing field work, they're doing historical research to create new dance movement vocabularies and movement forms um, and choreographies. And then they're giving their own um, their own new innovative ways of staging those in the concert dance setting. And so um, you see that with these two examples of new productions with um, Flowers and Rain on the Silk Road, which is the first full length Duan Huang dance, um, dance drama. And then with um, Zhao Shu Tun and Namaluna, which is the, um, the Dai Peacock um, dance story staged as a dance drama. Um, one of the things I emphasize is that both of these were actually continuations of projects that had started in these regions, in um, Lanzhou on the one hand, in, in Yunnan. On the other hand, um, during the 1950s, you, sh- you can actually trace these projects back to the, the mid-50s. Um, and so they were um, da- they were projects that had begun that were stalled out because of the Cultural Revolution, but then people um, started working on the get- them again in the late 70s. And so in that sense, I see this period as continuing um, directly, not only the models of creation, but also really specific projects that had begun in the pre-cultural revolution period. And they um, they gained ascendance in the post-cultural revolution period because um, they represented something that was um, like a new innovation um, for the time, um, even though they were building on these earlier projects. Um, and so I think it's really interesting to trace these um, particular dance styles that emerge in the 80s that actually continue to be very much a part of the Chinese dance um, um, choreographic repertoire today. So you see, you, you still see um, di- um, Yang Liping's Peacock Dance is performed a lot and there's all, constantly new variations of it that are coming out. And the same thing with Dunhuang Dance. So Dunhuang Dance is now a very important constituent element of Chinese dance today um, that emerged um, really on the national stage in the immediate post-cultural revolution period as a continuation of the early socialist forms. That's really fascinating. And what happened to ballet in this early period? Um, that's a great question. So I actually don't really talk about what happened in ballet in this period because, you know, the focus of my book is really looking at Chinese dance. But there actually is a whole story to tell about what happens with um, ballet at that time because there's a whole bunch of new um, choreographies that are staged that are actually inspired by modern Chinese literature. So there's Lu Xun-based 
um, play, uh, ballets that, that happened in the early 80s. And so ballet has also its own um, trajectory that happens um, that, you know, hopefully someone else will write a book about that because there's a lot to say. Uh, some PhD students should be taking note right now. <laughs> Actually, there are a couple of people writing about excellent, it. Excellent. <laughs> excellent. Well, that, that'll be a future podcast, I guess. Yeah. Um, all right. And that's really fascinating. So, and then um, to, to wrap up the, the, the main body of the book, the, the final cha- chapter brings us from the sort of the early post-mount period into the 21st century. Um, and in this uh, chapter entitled Inheriting the Socialist Legacy, you use three examples to look at uh, how how people have uh, inherited, how performance and choreographers have simultaneously inherited the socialist dance legacy, but also continue to renew and redefine Chinese dance. And I was wondering if you could sort of take us through these three examples and how they sort of help us see that both simultaneous inheritance and redefinition. Sure. Um, yeah. So the first example I look at is um, Gumira Mamet, who is a Uyghur dancer from Xinjiang, who gained national visibility when she won uh, one of the televised Chinese dance competitions um, in the 2010s, around 2014, 2015 was really when she um, became a star in the Chinese dance community. And I look at how she um, she's actually the student of a student of Kambara Han. So she directly carries on this genealogical um, relationship through that happens through dance education. Um, so she was trained in the Xinjiang Arts Academy, Arts Institute that um, Kang Barahan originally served as the founding figure of the dance program there. And um, so she carries on a lot of Kang Barahan's um, stylistic choices in representing uh, Uyghur ethnicity and also Xinjiang, the Xinjiang region in general through ethnic dance forms. Um, but I talk about how she really adapts these for, um, you know, this mediated uh, 21st century dance world, specifically the world of um, televised competition dance. And so she has, um, you know, really fast delivery of the movements. The um, A lot of the choreographic choices are inspired by like um, Bollywood cinema, for example, um, and other uh, multimedia representations of dance that are, we, are, we are familiar with today. And so you see, um, on the one hand, the continuation of um, Kambar Han's legacy, but on the other hand, you see it being adapted by Gulmira herself for a totally new um, contemporary uh, viewing audience. Uh, so that's the first example. The second example I talk about is um, the curriculum at the Beijing Dance Academy and how it continues to be modeled on this idea of conducting research um, at the same time that um, that new innovations are made in the, in the pedagogical context. Um, and then I... I also look at um, new dance dramas that continue in the national dance drama form that continue to be very closely linked to ideological and political themes in um, contemporary China today. So I look at dance dramas that are actually promoting the One Belt, One Road initiative. Um, and so we can see the way in which dance drama is still being used as a way to um, you know, educate and propagate um, average viewers about um, state initiatives and political um, movements that are happening, you know, currently that are, we're, we're familiar with, with the new administration in China today. Um, and then lastly, I look at some choreographers who are working within the Chinese dance um, genre um, who are actually pushing the self-reflexive aspects of Chinese dance and the formal experimentation in Chinese dance. And so I look at Zhang Yunfeng, who's a Beijing-based choreographer who 
um, really deals with questions of historical memory and of um, staging the encounter between contemporary individuals and their own um, historical past in different ways through his choreography. Um, and so I see him as someone who's sort of a visionary in taking us into new ways of staging um, Chinese classical dance themes, but in a way that um, are really relevant to contemporary uh, audiences and also ad are adapting aesthetic dimensions of um, what we might see as more like avant-garde, um, experimental, uh, contemporary dance choreography today. Fascinating stuff. Um, well, we've taken up a lot of your time today. Um, before I let you go, though, I was wondering if you could uh, just uh, give us one uh, answer, one more question, and that's specifically, uh, what are you working on now? Yeah, so thanks for asking about that. So I am currently working on a new project that continues to look at dance in um, the Asian context, but I'm really um, interested in uh, the representation of inter-Asian imaginaries um, through dance uh, during the early 20th century. So I'm looking at the 1930s to the 1960s. And some of the people were people I had, you know, discovered in the process of writing the first book. So like Dai Alien and then Chesun He, the Korean dancer. But then some of the people are dancers that, you know, I really didn't get a chance to write about very much in this book. Like um, um, Mikiko Matsuyama, who's the Japanese ballerina who per first uh, performed the role of the white-haired girl in China in 1958. Um, so those are some of the examples of the people I'll be looking at in this new project. And um, what I'm really interested in is how different concepts of Asian, um, inter-Asian, transnational consciousness, uh, specifically ideas of the East, um, emerged from the perspective of Chinese and other Asian choreographers themselves, rather than being represented by, um, you know, Euro-American choreographers. So in a way, it's a challenge to the history of Orientalist dance to look at how um, people imagine the East who identified with the East as their own ethnic identity. Well, that sounds really fascinating. I can't wait to see uh, to read more as it comes out. Well, the book is Revolutionary Bodies, Chinese Dance and the Socialist Legacy. Um, thanks very much, Emily, for all your time today. Yeah, thank you so much. It was great talking with you.